Hey, it's Jen Garrett here, and welcome to the Move the Ball podcast. I've helped thousands of people to develop their own personal game plan to achieve that next level of greatness. Now, I'm on a mission to help you utilize the same tools and strategies of professional athletes, Fortune 500 executives, and successful entrepreneurs to elevate your hustle and get you across your goal line. So get ready. It's your time to move the ball. Hey, everyone. Jen Garrett here. It's so great, as always, to be back with you on another episode of Move the Ball. Now, today, inside the huddle with us and ready to help us move the ball and share his amazing experiences and stories is Mr. Matthias Metternick. Matthias is a serial entrepreneur, and he is the co-founder and CEO of a phenomenal company called Art of Sports, a body care brand built from the ground up to help all athletes reach peak performance. Matthias and his co-founder, Brian Lee, were joined in their vision by founding partner, the late Kobe Bryant, and the brand's current athlete roster includes the NBA's James Harden, the NFL's Juju Smith-Schuster, and Major League Baseball's Javier Baez. And as someone who is from Chicago, who is a Cubs season ticket holder and who was at the 2016 World Series, Javi is one of my favorites. Matias, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited about our chat and where I want to start out. Well, first off, I have to say you have such an incredible and amazing background. And I was very impressed to learn that you taught yourself at the age of nine how to design and code video games. And why that resonated with me was I learned how to program in basic. Now I'm dating myself at the (laughs) age of eight. And it was just simple, you know, simple coding. But I just thought that was cool that you were designing and coding at such a young age. And then you started your first business at age 14. So you've had this entrepreneurial bug ever since you were young. Yes. I don't know if it was an entrepreneurial bug. I think I've kind of retroactively maybe applied that moniker. But, you know, I think it's just the consequence of maybe growing up, exploring ideas, having that kind of curiosity and then and sort of never stopping with the questioning, which could be quite tedious for some. But, you know, then just taking it from there. And before long, you realize that it's really not that scary to kind of come up with a hypothesis and take a crack at executing that and putting it out into the world and seeing if it sinks or swims. I think it's once you go through the ringer of maybe coming to entrepreneurship later in life, when you have all the risks associated with taking that leap of faith and putting your career on the line and you know, failing in adulthood, and maybe you have kids, maybe you have, you know, a wife, maybe you have a home a mortgage, you have to pay at that juncture, I think fear can sometimes be paralyzing. And we look to, you know, figuring out how to retool ourselves for those risks. But as a kid, you really have nothing to lose. So I won't take too much credit for it. But yeah, that that in summary is how things kicked off for me. Yeah, and you bring up a really great point because I went off on the entrepreneurial path later in life. And it is a big risk when you have a family, you have bills, you have obligations. I have five kids, as you know. So it was a big deal for me to take that leap of faith and say, you know what, I'm willing to leave my, it was a great corporate career behind and bet on myself and go all in. But so share with us, what did you do in that first business? What was it about? I had started a variety of projects online and my first business was sort of the product of a separate endeavor. And that was essentially going down to my local staples, you know, getting a thousand business cards printed. I think I got the version that said staples.com on the back because it was cheaper. 
And so I got a thousand of these business cards sort of touting my web design capabilities. And I would go around local businesses in Georgetown and DC and, and slip the card through the letterbox of all these restaurants and hotels and whatnot. And every now and then I'd get a call and, and someone would give me a web development project. But in doing that, what I noticed was that there was this really challenging reality between those who didn't have access to computers, wanted to use computers more and more, realized the world was sort of trending in that direction. And then simultaneously noting, noticing that a lot of my neighbors seemed to have computers they had just bought one or two or three years prior and had kind of gone already out of date because the kind of compounding sort of processing capabilities of computers was growing at a very fast rate back then. And you'd go from a 266 megahertz to a 560 or whatever it was. And so these computers were just sitting in closets around my neighborhood. And so I created a nonprofit, 501c3, basically gave people tax write-offs in exchange for these computers that they weren't using. I would then bulk those together. I would generally refurbish them, reinstall a new OS. And then I would sell those computers in bulk to schools and to libraries and Whoever needed those computers sold to them in bulk. And my first customer was my own high school, who didn't have a computer lab at the time. There was one computer, I think, in the library and, you know, 800 or 900 students, which doesn't really go down too well. So it was an opportunity I saw and, and it sort of snowballed from there. And I'd like to say that, you know, my best performance on the basketball court wasn't when I was shooting hoops. I was a fairly average or below average player. It was my ability to interrogate each school that I went and visited to play basketball at, whether they had a computer lab and my uh, and I had a good closing right there and I would sell computer labs wherever I would play basketball. So that was a, that was my first business. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love that. It's creative for one and you're looking for those opportunities and that's kind of what entrepreneurship is all about, right? It's trying to find those opportunities and sometimes you got to get creative. And so you had access to the schools because you were there for basketball. So why not get some intel and see if there's an opportunity you can create? Completely. I like it. So let's talk about what did you learn from that experience of being a younger business owner, entrepreneur that helped you to be successful? You've built many businesses since then. What really did you learn as a kid that has helped you and kind of stuck with you as you've built these other businesses? I think what's always been true is that call it the tropes or the rules or the truisms that I think so many people espouse about business for instance, you know, choosing a category or choosing a lane and just sticking in that lane, that those things aren't necessarily guides that increase your success or, or increase your propensity to be successful. And so I've found that if you have a good working methodology where you sort of aggressively interrogate the problem and correctly validate any kind of solutions that sort of bubble to the surface and you do those things quickly, you have an iterative approach, you can quickly iterate through you know, different versions of the product at minimal cost to you, at minimal risk to the venture, and you then find paying customers at the other end of that sequence, then it's kind of irrelevant what type of business you're in. And you can really learn your way and will your way into certain categories, not with relative ease, but certainly without the major kind of barrier to entry that I think a lot of people like to paint. And then, of course, I think that's highly variable based on the complexity of the category you're going after. But I think one thing that I found to be true, and that's that I really took away early on in life when I was able to take risks and not fall on my face, was that it's fairly easy and quite possible to reinvent oneself, 
and to go after opportunities that might be outside of your comfort zone or outside of your field of expertise. And that stood me pretty well over, over time. So I've honed skills and honed tools, I think, that enable me to throw myself into the deep end, learn the kind of environment that I'm in, understand the competitive landscape, understand if I can make incremental improvements or significant improvements, and then deliver value to the market. Gotcha. And the thing too, so a couple of things that you said that I like, one, the iterative process. And I think that's important because you do have to, when you are in not just the entrepreneurial space, even when you're in a major company and you're putting out a new product, right? It's not always going to be the right product the first time. So there's testing. There's, And it doesn't have to be perfect before you put it out there. That's that minimal viable product MVP concept, right? And then you iterate and you iterate and you can figure out how do you perfect it or how do you continue to refine so that you do get those customers that are wanting to buy what you have to offer. Another thing, as I I'm listening to you, you had mentioned, you know, how you can throw yourself into the deep end and figure out what you need to. I think it's important too to realize it's not just about you, it's about having the team or having the right people around you to help you navigate through those waters if you aren't an expert in a particular area. So can you talk a little bit about how you have chosen people throughout your ventures that have really kind of complemented you in terms of domain expertise or skill set so that you can be successful? Yes, absolutely. I, and that's a very good point. I think, you know, early on in my career, when I didn't have any of the means to pay anyone, or I was alone, and you know, I lived in some fairly far flung places, I had to become proficient to be able to execute an idea more or less by myself, at least to a stage where others could see it and believe in it and join me. I think later in life, as you realize the power of team, and you realize how much further a good team can go than one person, you invite people around you much earlier in the sequence of that initial kind of nucleus of an idea. And, you know, in the case of Art of Sport, it was very clear to Brian, Brian Lee is my co-founder in the venture with Kobe Bryant, that we would need to have a brilliant team around us who could help us take advantage of this very large opportunity in a, in a very nascent, albeit competitive category, if we were going to be successful in creating an outlier and move at the speed that we would felt we needed to, to take advantage of the opportunity. So to that end, I think what we did, where we started was with the absolute building blocks of the value proposition, how can we assuredly and confidently put the best possible product into the world? And the people we needed to test this product, we felt in building a sports brand and a skincare brand for athletes are the world's greatest athletes and people who've committed their lives to the journey of sport. And so we brought Kobe as, as a legend in the space into the business from day one. And then we brought around us six remarkable athletes at the top of their fields. James Harper, for instance, Juju Smith-Schuster, Ryan Sheckler in skateboarding, Ken Roxon in motocross, etc., to help inform and test these products to a point where we then felt we had validated that we could create something from nothing that had value. And then from there, we built. We built out the team to bring on board the best brand and marketing person we could find. We found my colleague, Kai Foster, who looks after our marketing efforts, had an incredible career and just happened to have worked on Axe and Dove Men way back in the day, and then moved to Under Armour, where he helped build the basketball program globally when Under Armour didn't have a basketball program. You know, we brought on board in the sales function, someone who had worked at large corporates and had scaled consumer brands out to the world. And Obi's done an incredible job to accelerate our company as an omni-channel player. We brought on board on the operations side and the back end, 
Victoria and, and her team, Victoria Reyes, who was at Honest Company prior, Starbucks before that. And we built that way. And recently, we hired a chief financial officer who was at very fast-growing consumer brands, Calafia being one of them, a Soylent, but also had experience in sport with Red Bull and had experience at Mars and Unilever, two of the largest conglomerates in consumer packaged goods. So the team was built over time. But in total, I can look to each of the functions and each of the influences and say, these are the best people that we could find. And every day we work to try and perform at our peak as a team where the collective effort is more than the sum of the parts with a very clear vision and a really and a very strong goal to sort of disrupt the category and help you achieve your full potential when you apply your, our products to your skin. So that's a long-winded answer, but there are many building blocks that came together for us and we were extremely deliberate in how we pulled that team together and, and how we guide them forward. Well, I think that's great that you've got such a powerhouse. I mean, just listening to the backgrounds of who you brought in to the team. And I'm not talking about the athletes alone, but also the domain depth that you brought from different experts in their own area. And you really need those people, right? I think sometimes people get caught up in, well, I don't know how to do this, so I can't go off and do this business. And it's not about you. It's about bringing that team together that have the experiences that you need so that you collectively complement one another and are better together than the sum of the individual parts, as you said. So let's step back and give people a little bit more background about the artist board. I know your story. I think it's a great story how the idea came to be. You guys started the company back a couple years ago, 2018. Talk to us about you being on the basketball court with Brian and how Art of Sport came to be an idea for you guys. (laughs) Well, we Brian was stepping down from the Honest Company. Brian had an incredible run building Honest Company from scratch with Jessica Alba. When, if you're familiar with them, they, they make baby products and products for expectant mothers and for new families. And so had his fingers and his tentacles in the space of building consumer packaged goods. And I had built several companies that were both consumer-facing brands. I also built several brands where I was on the back end building out the infrastructure that could help scale it. I'm a designer and coder by background. So I was able to design a lot of products for clients throughout the years. And we paired our thinking about the space when Brian had an initial sort of light bulb where he, he noticed a bunch of sunscreens at CVS that had, you know, Coppertone Sport and Banana Boat Sport and Hawaiian Tropic Sport, all these sport references, but none of the formulas were sport. None of them had any ingredients or efficacy that, that were sort of geared toward the athletes. So there was, it was sort of a question mark there. And when Brian and I then walked through the aisles of our local Target, and we went through all the different departments and looked at deodorants and body washes and soaps and body lotions and wipes and whatnot, we kept seeing the word sport, but we didn't see any brands that were built by the athlete for the athlete in an authentic way with that true North Star to serve what the athlete needs and offer that inspiration to athletes where it's also not just about the physical, but it's about the mental. And so if you look at brands like Nike and Under Armour and Gatorade and Adidas and Powerade and you name it, you know, these are some of the best brands in the world innovating for the athlete every day. That's their core and central mission. And they work with athletes of all stripes and colors to create amazing products. That was the moment where Brian and I said to ourselves, well, why hasn't anyone done this in skin? Personal care products, you apply to your skin multiple times a day throughout the entirety of your life. And so shouldn't we be concerned with and shouldn't we be elevating those formulas? Shouldn't we be questioning what chemicals we put on our skin every day? And is there space for a player with a new tone of voice, with a new message 
that connects for everyone in a way that's inspiring. And so that's how the initial idea came about. And then the hard work started, which was how do we build this? Sure. And you thought about bringing Kobe into it because of just his work ethic, who he is, what he's done both on and off the field. But talk to us about when did you loop him in? So you had this idea, how long from the initial concept to when you reached out and said, hey, you know, we've got this great idea. Let me tell you about it and explore that partnership. Well, Brian and I can move very quickly to conceive of, you know, something that we're confident we can execute. And we went through that process fairly quickly, I would say, within the span of three or four months, uh, we had initial samples that would then go on to have hundreds of iterations, but initial samples, you know, initial brand, and sort of a product range, a go to market strategy, we had cooked these things up. And when we met with Kobe, it was probably three or four months into that initial process where we felt confident we had something. And it was still early. So it was a point where Kobe could really kind of affect a lot of the decisions and help us think through some of the problems that we would face. And one has to remember that Kobe wasn't just one of the greatest athletes of all time. He was also someone who had built brands like Nike globally for 20-something years of his career, taking products, new products to diverse audiences around the globe, building a cultural brand as much as a sports brand, working with other athletes. And then he did the same with Body Armor, which was a beverage brand competing with Gatorade and had a lot of experience building that business from zero to what it became when it was acquired by Coca-Cola. So it was a really important meeting for us. And it was an important, I think, meeting of the minds. And we're all, we were all very similarly minded and hardwired to play the game hard, commit ourselves to the journey and do that with great passion, but also with very, very keen focus on authenticity and serving the athlete authentically. So it was a very early part of the equation and it was a very fundamental part of our development. And I think everyone can appreciate how hardworking, how much of a great athlete, business person, leader Kobe was. One of the things that I've heard you guys appreciate about Kobe was him being a creative partner. Can you talk a little bit more about how his creative side, because I don't think a lot of people hear about that as much. I mean, you just mentioned he helped build these other brands globally, but I don't think people are as familiar with the creative side of Kobe. Yes, I think he was, I, and I won't speak to all of the things he was involved with because there were always new projects that he was involved with. He, and he had started Granity Studios, which uh, had won an Oscar for a short film that he had produced and written and helped direct. He was involved with Body Armor and directing their TV commercials. And so when it came time to working with us, his, his instincts about the business were all pretty correct and very quickly so, but where he wanted to roll up his sleeves and get involved was the creative. He wanted to look at the packaging. He wanted to look at the verbiage. He wanted he named all of our scents that you see on on shelves. It took him quite some time and he, I think he was he spent a lot of time thinking through what names he felt were representative of the feeling that we wanted to put forward. He was involved in the fragrances. He was interested to understand what that product rollout would look like and who that would serve. He was very active in understanding whether or not the sensory experience could be improved based on not just his initial feedback, but he actively shared all of our samples with his athlete community, which includes some of the most notable athletes in the world. And so he just became this kind of creative force that was, I think, very instinctual and natural to him. And we were fortunate enough to enjoy that, but also create that lane in the organization where, where that effect could pay dividends. And so much of that became and was retained as truisms in the company and, and informs our mission. And those, many of those things were timeless suggestions that we come back to on a regular basis 
especially, uh, you know, having lost him in, in the beginning of 2020. Right. Wow. Well, that's amazing that you got to work so hands-on with someone who's just, I mean, a brilliant person, brilliant mind, has some creative side to him, and to have him so engaged in your business must have been just an incredible experience. Very lucky. Yes. So I want to step back just a little bit to the first 90 days of Art of Sport. And the reason for this is I've seen so many entrepreneurs, they're all excited, right? I've got this idea and I'm ready to go. And they make a lot of common mistakes because they haven't been an entrepreneur before or they haven't sought out advice Mm -hmm. from entrepreneurs who have lived through pains and learned things and can help them avoid common pitfalls and mistakes. So for your guys' first 90 days, what did you guys focus on and what were some of the things you already knew not to do? So two things come to mind. I'm sure there's a very, very long list. But the first two things is I had just come out of a company building a business that was selling online only. And it was a direct-to-consumer brand. And you know, I staked the whole company on that one channel on our website. And meanwhile, we had a, a pretty successful wholesale business that I was sort of disinterested in because all of the mantras I had told myself was either I'm building a D2C brand or I'm building a sort of a wholesale business or I'm maybe building an omni-channel company. But I was very prescriptive about the channel that I felt I needed to sell my products on and why. And with this business, I think one mistake that we avoided early on was being overly prescriptive about the channel that we would sort of stake our entire claim on, bet the farm on. So when we launched online, we launched online with a dot-com presence. That was our flagship. That was our lighthouse. But we also partnered very deeply with Amazon. And that was quite unconventional for D2C businesses, even as recent as three years ago. I clock our launch as sort of 2019 versus 2018. 2018, we were still in the kind of incubation phase of building the company. We sort of lifted the curtains off the company at the end of 2018, but it was really 2019 where we started to, to really have a, you know, all the kinks ironed out and the business growing. So to that end, to answer your question, it was about the omnichannel nature of the business being extremely flexible in that respect and designing the internal workings of the company to listen very clearly to where we could find a pulse and then double down there. We also played a very tight game when it came to hedging our spend and not scaling too quickly. It's one of those lessons that I think a lot of VC-backed businesses or entrepreneurs try to make. They try to they want to be big very fast. And I think you have to be very careful and quiet in the first few instances. Yes, you beat your drum very loudly on the street. You try to get as much attention as you can. You try to engage as much as you can and iterate. But at the same time, you take you place very careful bets. So channel strategy was one. And the second thing that comes to mind was on the inventory side. And I have had a history primarily in software. I've built a lot of software businesses. Some of them are enterprise, B2B. Some of them are consumer-facing apps. But the venture that I had started previous to Art of Sport also dealt in inventory. And there, too, we had to make very considered decisions around how deep to buy, what to buy, how big of an assortment, what we felt the consumer needed versus wanted. And then sort of, you know, tie cash up in a lot of those different buying decisions and merchandising decisions. With Art of Sport, we felt we needed to create a platform that represented the full body care routine from day one. We weren't going to start with just a deodorant or just a bar of soap because that really doesn't fulfill the mission. We wanted athletes to believe in Art of Sport as the brand they could trust to apply to their skin morning, day and night, before the game, after the game. So having one single SKU was not going to be an option. And so we developed that full regimen of products, the full skincare suite with deodorant and body wash and shampoo and lotion. And we even had a sunscreen 
We even had a pain cream so that you could have that full 360 skincare support system. But what we had to make sure we did was we had to try and validate how much of and why of certain product categories we wanted to invest in, how deep we wanted to buy into those product categories, and then really weigh up where we thought the biggest opportunities were uh, versus what we thought was important to have as part of our narrative, but maybe not something we wanted to overly invest in. And so I think there was a lot more consideration when it came to purchasing. There was a lot more consideration when it came to repeatable parts that you could reuse across different elements. And that informed also the kinds of relationships we needed with factories, the level of flexibility required for them. And again, you know, putting in place iterative approaches to the extent that it's possible within physical product production. And those two things are not historically well aligned. Flexibility and mass scale at scale production you don't find that often in the same sentence because it's just not, you know, big factories and factory partners and production lines are not tooled to provide you flexibility. So making sure that we could find the right partners and be deliberate in that approach paid a tremendous amount of dividends later on as we then sort of went through the rationalization of, is this brand working? Do we think our products are connecting with consumers? Do we have to change anything relating to the products? And are there opportunities to improve quickly? Versus sitting on a huge amount of inventory, now we're paralyzed, we can't make any changes, we can't usher through you know, additional production runs, and now we're sort of stuck with exactly what we thought we would be when we started, but might not be connected with the market. So those were probably two fundamental things that were considered deeply as part of that first 90 day. And of course, there's a long list of other things, but those I would say are, are incredibly critical when you're starting a consumer brand or any physical products business and, and launching it into the world. Sure. Yeah, those are very good points. And I'm glad that you someone I don't have physical product in my brand. It's very service based. But it, for me, as I'm listening to you, it's very interesting, because I've never had to think through those right. things because that wasn't, you know, my offering. So I, I personally appreciate you sharing that it gets me I like to think about new things. And so it's just got the wheels turning in my mind. about Oh, yeah, okay. Remember that, Jen, if you're going to ever launch a product, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to, to think about these questions. Great. So one thing I want to ask you, you know, we were chatting before uh, the show about how 2021 is going to be a great year for us, right? And so talk to us about what are the great things that you have planned for Artist Sport this year? Yeah. So quickly, we, we started online in 2019. We then partnered with Target in 2020. It was the largest partnership of its kind. We launched 14 products with them nationally. So at every location around the country, it was about 1,600 locations. And that was a real baptism by fire, learning how to sell our products in the physical brick and mortar environments, which brought with it a whole evolution internally of how we support our partners, how we distribute products, etc. 2021 is a year where we are accelerating that knowledge and that experience that we gleaned in 2020. And so we are going to be almost 10xing our retail presence across the nation, which is enormous, enormous growth. And we'll see us of over 10,000, over 12,000 retail locations starting you know, end of this month and in February. So we've had our heads down, buried in the sand, well, not buried in the sand, but so much as, as slaving away, working away, trying to make sure that we can get all of our quality product out on time. Um, while keeping our Amazon channel humming, while keeping our .com channel humming. And so we're very excited to see that come to life. We have some incredible new products that have hit the market. We just launched Body Spray, and there'll be a few other products we can't mention yet that you'll see out in the wild from February. But we're starting to see the vision really manifest. 
and the goal of being a household brand name that consumers can access whatever channel they shop in at a price point that they find incredibly reasonable, despite the high level of quality. It was the dream that Ryan and I and, and Kobe had when we first started. And, and so it feels like we have some wind in our sails. Now, of course, that's contingent on the economy continuing to do well, and it's, con it's contingent on the vaccines hitting so that consumers can feel safe going out and shopping again. But hopefully all those things come together, and not just for us, but for the industry at large and for entrepreneurs everywhere. I think I think everyone is feeling that you know the last year has been tough. Some have been winners and some have been losers, but hopefully we all see we see the tides lift and all ships rise together this year. Well, that's awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing the continued growth and these new products that uh, you can't speak about just yet. So folks, stay tuned and share with us your website where people can learn more about Art of Sport. You can visit us at artofsport.com. And we're pretty active on Instagram and Art of Sport and on TikTok at Art of Sport. We're also on Amazon and you can find us at your target. And as of, I think, yesterday or the day before, you can find us at about 6,000 CVS locations and there'll be several other retailers coming online. So it'll be hard to miss us. But if you want to visit us online, check us out at artsport.com. And I think that's so interesting that it's in CVS now. And that's kind of where it started for you guys, right? Walking down the aisles of CVS, looking at all these other brands that had sport on the name. How does that feel for you knowing that <laughs> you're now in the store where it all started? You know, I hadn't even thought about that. So I've just had a moment of reflection there. Um, that's actually a lesson for me to just to do a better job of taking stock of what we have accomplished, because it's only been just shy of 24 months, or just north of 24 months that we had this idea. And, and now we're hopefully going to see this thriving in the same retail environment where it didn't used to exist. So thank you for giving me that reminder. And it, yeah, it, it does make me a little speechless thinking about it. And I think we need to take a little moment as a team to, to acknowledge that. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely think you guys should. It's a, you got to just capture those moments. And that's one thing that I really enjoyed about going on my own entrepreneurial venture. I'm in year two now. And one thing that really excited me was there's a lot of uncertainty on the road, as you know, but there's these moments where you're just like, oh my gosh, I never thought that would have happened. Or wow, this is amazing that this event or this thing or this partnership came to be. And it's just those things that make the risks worth it. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think I think entrepreneurs, when they start, you know, they they have a plan. And if they can pursue that plan and execute that plan, you know, I've had this conversation before with other fellow entrepreneurs where I've said to them, hey, it's just amazing what you've managed to do. And they're sort of saying, well, we're only just getting started. I mean, we're, it's all going to plan for now. We'll see what happens. They can't extract themselves from what they had, you know, in their original PowerPoint or the original keynote, because this is what's supposed to happen. And so to that end, I think, you know, we can be very stubborn in that respect and just, you know, singularly focused on, okay, chapter one's finished. Let's do chapter two. Let's do chapter three. But to your point, and I think this is a, a truism that Kobe brought to the party as well, was that it's about the process. It's not about the wins and the losses necessarily, but it is about appreciating the journey and being committed to the grind and taking from it the lessons that are learned. And I think those things are lifelong lessons. And I've certainly learned more from the process than I have from my wins or my losses, but at the every day working with the team side by side with them, and, you know, reflecting on what I could do better and what I could you know, improve upon for the next go around. I think those are the things that I have stood me the, the best following you know, 15 plus years of entrepreneurship. Sure. Well, thanks so much for sharing all the great things that you're doing with the art of sport. And I, as we end the show, I just want to take you to my two minute drill where I'm going to ask you some seven fun questions. Yep. Ready. All right. 
Here we go. First one is, what did you want to be when you were 10 years old? Uh, an entrepreneur. I'm not surprised by that. <laughs> okay. Next question is, who would play you in a movie about your life? That's a good question. I mean, I would love to see Ralph Fiennes, you know, just the English gentleman. But yeah, I, I, it needs to be somebody who can pull off a tortured soul quite well. You know, no one too happy-go-lucky and no one too athletic and sporty. I think it's someone who, maybe it's uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. That would be great. Okay, gotcha. All right, next question is, what is your favorite vacation spot? My favorite vacation spot, God, my first instinct was to say my computer because I uh, I sort of disappear and it's a very visceral experience of designing things. But um, my favorite outdoor experiences tend to be places that are pretty isolated and trekking through the mountains is one of them. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, next question is, what is your favorite ice cream flavor? Favorite ice cream flavor is salted caramel. That's a good one. I like that one. How about what is a pet peeve of yours? A pet peeve is noise. I am extremely sensitive to noise. So if you're eating an apple next to me on a plane or in an office, then you'll probably notice me leaving the building very quickly. Ah, okay. Make a note to myself. Don't eat apple <laughs> next to me. <laughs> All right. Next question. What book are you currently reading or what podcast are you currently listening to? I was enjoying the podcast called Behind the Bastards which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but it's essentially a uh, regular episode about someone in history who, who's quote unquote a bastard has done something pretty awful. And they go into really sort of the minutia behind what they did and why they did and who this person was. And it just is actually a, quite a hilarious and interesting uh, escape. Oh, interesting. I'll have to check that out. I've not heard of it before. And my last question is, you're hosting a dinner party and you can invite three famous people. They can be living or deceased. Who would you choose and why? Interesting. So number one would probably be Anthony Hopkins. I think he's passed away recently, but he's someone who comes to mind immediately. Another person would probably be Leonardo da Vinci, someone who's a quite an innovative mind and great mind. So I would actually just quite like to see him in the year 2020 taking things in. And then the third would probably be, gosh, I can't think of anyone just yet, but maybe maybe Abraham Lincoln. I think that would be a pretty compelling uh, table of discussion. For sure. And I'm not sure what Anthony Hopkins is still doing there as part of that group of people, but um, I'll come back to you on the third person. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on today's show. It's been just a, an absolute pleasure hearing your experiences and your story. And you've definitely given me some great things to kind of keep in the back of my head and also just to be thinking about. Brilliant. Well, thank you again. And um, I'm excited for all of our 2021. And, and hopefully we'll see things restored to a place of normal while keeping the wind in our sails and see success all around. I hope so. And thank you to everyone for listening to today's episode. We will talk to you next time. Until then, make sure that you suit up, you show up and you move the ball. Thank you for listening to Move the Ball. To see more about what I'm up to and how I can help you to move the ball, check out my website at www.getinsidethehuddle.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And also join the Move the Ball Facebook group for even more content and to be a part of the Move the Ball movement.